episode 32, artist B.D. Wolf. My name is Michael Delgado and I'm your host. I come to you each week from the luxurious library bar in the magnificent Mayfair Hotel right here in downtown L.A., where the fire-breathing Santa Ana winds have just blown my appointment through the lobby doors. Nonplussed, she breezes through the lobby in jeans and a t-shirt, her shoulder-length blonde hair playfully tossed. She beams an electric smile. It's time to meet. You know Geiger's bookstore across the street? I think I may have passed. You know Geiger by sight? Geiger's in his early 40s, medium height, fattish, soft all over, Charlie Chan mustache, well-dressed, wears a black hat, affects the knowledge of antiques and hasn't any. And, oh, yes, I think his left eye is glass. Hello. Hello. My guest today is musician, artist, cum phenom, B.D. Wolf. Wolf defies strict cultural classification because she likes to juxtapose opposites or turn things on their head, like technology and acoustic instruments, or defying typical music industry streaming networks, touring schedules, or even labels. She insists that her work be experienced in situ, in specially crafted installations or spaces. Vice magazine could only land on describing her as a weirdo visionary. In this interview, you'll learn about some of those projects, but if you're not familiar with her music, I wanted to open with a song. Wolf is an amazing lyricist. Her poetic leanings are obvious, and a fantastic songwriter who has been mentored by none other than Wynton Marsalis. I urge you to check her out at bdwolf.com, and we have links at aggeiger.com as well. Please welcome B.D. Wolf. Had to see 
what's beneath So you're scratched in your sleep Seeing voices in your dreams And they told you it's hard When you're flung in this world Tender hands that turn to fists Till you're beautifully scarred You're beautifully scarred So I will say, welcome, Beatty. It's wonderful to be here. Thank mm. you, Michael. No, I am so excited, and I have I have to say, I um, you know, I was doing my homework for the interview, and um, and I, as I kept reading and listening to the music, uh, I just get kept getting increasingly uh, intimidated because <laughs> <laughs> because, because uh, Vice has called you visionary. The Times, I'm assuming, is that the London Times? Uh, or the New York, New York Times. Times. Yeah. The New York Times, even better, calls you profound. Wired says you're one of 22 people changing the world. And you are a UN woman role model. So if that is an intimidating, I don't know what is. But you're adorable. And you're like, you're so nice and accessible. Nothing to be intimidated by. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I'm really curious. Like, okay, how does one become a UN woman role model? How does that happen? Who does it? Like, yeah, I, honestly, I still don't know myself. Um, you know, I guess I just pursued a. To say career, it's it became a career, but I just pursued things that I was passionate about. Um, the principal one being music, and I just loved music so much. I grew up writing songs from a young age and discovering my parents' record collection along with my dad's rare book collection um, made such an impression on me in terms of these sort of musical worlds that you could open up and enter into. And they had an art form and a ceremony and a story. And I fell in love with this idea of you know, what my album could look like, what it could feel like, what the whole world would be. So really by the time I grew up and everything physical had been replaced with the digital and we'd moved from one to the other so fast and kind of hadn't really figured out 
how to combine the best of the two worlds, which I felt like was just so obvious. Wouldn't you take, you know, the best of the old art form and, and combine it with what technology mm. might be able to offer? So I guess that's what I started doing. And I started creating these new types of formats for albums from, you know, a theatre for the palm of your hand through to a reimagining of the album jacket, literally as a jacket. Um, through to this anti-stream from the quietest room on earth, a space broadcast using the horn that proved the Big Bang. And all of those connected with this same central idea of exploring a new way of creating a richer experience around a record. Mm -hmm. So based on me doing that, I guess I started getting acknowledged for being weird <laughs> but it's a but you know when you listen to your music i mean and you know on all the all of those things on the back of some really great music writing i mean that's the music's beautiful and the, you're quite the lyricist um and i want to ask you about that too but uh i mean you you can do all those things like the the digital the, the palm of your hand theater which i want to ask you about as well um but without you know the music part of it, it's, it's uh, you know, I mean, you, you got to have the chops on that end, and, and you certainly do. So did you go to, uh, like, a music academy, or what happened? No, kind of the opposite. I studied, well, I studied literature. Um, I always felt that studying music wasn't natural for me because I had an ear, or I felt like I had an ear, and so I'd write songs very intuitively. I wanted my lyrics, my the stories, to be as powerful and strong as possible. Someone like Leonard Cohen was always a big um, inspiration for, as someone who could write songs that were so poetic they could be studied as poetry and poetry that was so lyrical it kind of leapt off the page. Um, so he was he was someone I I really appreciated, but I guess that. I don't know, I never really thought about the music part in terms of figuring out if I was any good at it or not. I just, it just felt like the one thing I was meant to do or the one thing that came very natural to me. So who gave you the guitar, your parents, or did you just, was that a rebellious little moment? or? Well, so I'd been doing um, keyboard lessons when I was really young. Or I, well, I had a keyboard and then there were some lessons you could get at school, you know, occasional lessons that um, you could opt in for. And I had a piano teacher and I was completely uninterested in learning scales or learning other people's songs. I was about six or seven, bit of a dick probably. <laughs> and, um, and instead I wanted to find a way of transcribing these songs that were in my head. So I'd go into the lesson and sing this song and the teacher would help me find the chords and I'd go home with a cassette tape of... So you started writing before you could write music? Yeah. <laughs> and from that, you know, it, it sort of... I don't know, I think I fell out of love. I never really loved the piano or keyboard. It wasn't my natural instrument, but I'd written a few songs um, using it. And then I guess around the age of 13, 14, I discovered this old broken guitar that was behind the grandfather clock in our house that had been my grandmother's. And we had a Spanish builder in the house at the time who was fixing the ceiling in the kitchen because it had caved in because of some flood. <laughs> and um, he happened to be this 
virtuoso guitarist. Oh so God. I grabbed the guitar and he gave me my first and only lesson pretty much. Um, and after that I was hooked because also no one had told me to play it, but I was just, you know, figuring mm -hmm. things out. And, and then later on in life, I had a mentor uh, for a number of years actually, that was this jazz trumpeter, Wynton Marsalis. Mm -hmm. And I didn't really know who he was when we first met, but we connected on William Blake and uh, Hafiz and all these, you know, and Oliver Sacks. How did you happen to stumble upon Wynton? So we, we were playing, we were both playing the jazz cafe at the same night. Oh no, Ronnie Scott's, and he was, I was upstairs, he was downstairs. So um, I then heard from an uncle, because an uncle had seen that we were sharing the bill, and he was like, oh, you've got to say hi to Winton, I helped organise his tour in Australia. So I, you know, went up to say hi, couldn't speak to him, left a card just saying, you know, Henry says hi. And he got in touch and we met for lunch. And we really connected on a lot of these other things, poetry, philosophy, leadership, you know, all this other stuff around music, you know, the intention, what you're bringing to the whole um, experience. And, and I, I, I still hadn't really appreciated what a sort of amazing musician he was. And, uh, I had my double bassist texting me saying, you know, you're with Winton, can I, I, I can jump in the car in like two minutes and drive over, drive over to your house. Um, because we ended up actually playing through the whole of the first of my uh, album, him on piano, me on guitar. Oh, yes. wow. And he started, you know, analyzing these songs, I guess from a music theory perspective, you know, what I was doing this inversion, answering that one, but also looking at the po the lyrics and the poetry. And and I was just standing there very passively, sort of waiting for his assessment, but also like not really sure who this guy was or like what was going on. And at the end, um, you know, he he's like, oh, these songs are brilliant. And, you know, you really understand a lot of these principles and your poetry is like Yeats, you understand the power of opposites and all this stuff that was actually incredibly reassuring in some ways because after that whenever I was in the studio with some producer who'd say that I couldn't do this suspended chord because it didn't make sense with the melody I was singing be like whatever like Winton says it's <laughs> fine Winton says it's fine I'm demurring to Mr. Marcel yeah. <laughs> but it's that thing of like I feel like if you have an ear having an ear and I'm not even saying I have an ear but if you have an ear and you trust it that's where the magic is because you're doing things that don't technically make sense you know or it's that whole thing of like why AI is problematic in music because you would never program the mistakes, mm. the imperfections and that's actually a lot of the time where the humanity, the magic, the connection you know in terms of where we feel something is. So with me like I just trusted my ear and like I you know I if, if I liked it I felt like well someone else will like it and I think a lot of people can get caught up in sort of half learning the rules but the thing with Winton is he learned all the rules to then know to break how it, to ignore yeah. them. Right, you know. how to break it. Ah, interesting. 
So speaking of an ear, I wanted to talk about uh, the, the, the giant antenna, which is, what was the name of it? The horn? The, the Homedale horn antenna. Yes, yes. And so um, I wanted to ask you about that. Like, how did you come up with that idea? And maybe you can briefly describe it since I will have stuff up on, you know, the website and everything where you can look it up. But um, it's an interesting project where you sent your, was it an album or just the song? It was the Raw Space record. Oh, the whole record. Yeah. Okay. And you sent it into space, right? So this, this antenna is, as you mentioned, was um, helped prove the Big Bang Theory, right? And I love Max Planck. He's one of my favorites. Um, just sort of interesting because I was sort of interested in the, like, that moment that he was able to define that, you know, the world began to differentiate itself, right? So, um, anyway, so this antenna helped figure out Planck's time, right? Or was it, or after that? So, Planck's constant. this would, would have been early 60s. Um, so, the, the Homdahl horn antenna was used by Robert Wilson and Arno Penzias, I can never say his surname, Penzias or something. Um, basically, they, using this horn, picked up cosmic background radiation, or cosmic microwave radiation, you can call it either. And in doing that, realized that the validity of the Big Bang Theory was, you know, it was very likely. So they by discovering CMB, proved the validity of the Big Bang Theory. Mm. Um, but it, initially they thought it was an issue with the horn. They thought, you know, they'd got interference or even it was pigeon poo. And, you know, they were really <laughs> frustrated because they saw it as a mistake, as an mm. error. And it, then it took them a while to actually realize that this was, you know, something that connected with the the sound that was at the birth of our universe um so the way i got connected with the horn and with robert wilson principally who's now a friend um was because i'd done this anti-stream experience with bell labs from the anechoic chamber that was the original anechoic chamber the quietest room on earth for 40 years and it was the place where Helen Keller experienced silence for the first time, where they built the foil microphone, they discovered rogue frequencies, psychoacoustics. Where is that? It's in New Jersey. Oh. Uh, and so I'd had this idea based on this continuation of my, my constant obsession with creating these vinyl experiences for today. Uh, it was the third record and, you know, I'd already done the theatre for the palm of your hand, the jacket, this deck of cards that were the previous two albums. And at that point, you know, for the first two albums, we were in a time of digital downloads. But by the time Raw Space was coming out, it was streaming predominantly. That's how we listened to everything. And I felt like streaming had lost so much of what I loved about the whole experience of sitting with an album that I was kind of thinking, well, if this is streaming on the one hand, what could the anti-stream look like? And while I was thinking about that, I happened to be at Bell Labs um, working on something else. 
As, as, <laughs> as, as you do. Yeah. I just happened to be a bailout. What could you, what were you possibly working on? So they'd got in touch about me testing out a platform that they were building uh, and experimenting with it. So I was there working with them on that and I was asked if I wanted to go into this anechoic chamber and being a super geek, I guess, and a super interested in both sound and silence, I was like, yeah, of course. And as we were walking up there, the engineer was like, just so you know, people can only stay in here, you know, 20 minutes because they start to get nauseous or hear the blood rushing through their veins mm. or freak mm-hmm. out. Uh, so I'm just, we're just warning you. And as soon as the door was closed and it was this, you know, incredibly thick, I mean, several feet thick door, deep door, um, instead of freaking out, I felt absolute calm and clarity and, and presence. And I realized that, you know, suddenly when you take out all the noise, you realize how noisy the world is and you realize how bombarded our sensory systems are and for me it was also realizing how music had become part of that noise Mm. that background that thing that was constantly on but we never really listened to so I felt like this room which was the anti-echo chamber the original anti-echo chamber was the perfect place for this anti-stream idea so I had this idea of having the record player playing the album on repeat 24 hours for a week, which was live 360 stream to YouTube, the first that had been done. People could log in, they couldn't shuffle, they couldn't fast forward, wherever the record was, that that's what they'd hear. But then using live um, animations, the lyrics would be streaming out of the vinyl, the artwork would be surrounding you and transforming the chamber into the visual landscape of each track. And that would happen in real time. So after I'd done that, I, you know, I'd called the album Raw Space based on the chamber, nothing to do with space. But then Robert Wilson, who'd won the Nobel Prize for discovering cosmic background radiation with the horn antenna, got in touch. I was like, I'd love to meet. I've heard what you've done with Bell Labs and it'd be great to, you know, meet up. So I asked if we can meet in front of this instrument because I'm really fascinated with that. And, you know, and I ask him, I say, you, you've used this to receive, but have you ever used it to transmit? And he's like, well, no. I'm like, well, in theory, could you? You know, so the album happens to be called Raw Space. Could we, in theory, you know, <laughs> broadcast it into space using this horn? And he's like, well, no, because the sound waves will get to a point in, in the Earth's atmosphere and then they'll stop. And I thought that was the end of the conversation. And a few weeks later, I get an email from him saying, like, BT, I figured it out. I can do an update <laughs> on the horn if you still want to do the space broadcast. And he's, Robert is a, you know, 90-year-old, like, very well-regarded scientist. And this is a, a historic instrument that's kind of on a par with Mount Rushmore. It's, you know, National Historic Landmark. So I couldn't believe that he'd gone away and figured out a way of like making this very whimsical idea happen um but i was delighted to do it and we we did the broadcast of the album and the idea was 
that it wasn't the studio version, but the raw anechoic version that had been recorded in the chamber. No EQ, no processing, no enhancements of any kind as the rawest sound entering into the rawest space. Hmm. So where did you point it? In a general <laughs> direction. <laughs> bounce it off Venus. Yeah. So initially, you know, Bob was updating me with like, okay, based on my calculations, this is where the music would be traveling. I think now it's halfway to Proxima Centauri, oh, wow. which is yeah. pretty far. That's a lot of words, um, yeah. So that was, you know, that was the uh, September 26, 2017. Uh, so coming up now two years ago. I, you know, and I, when I read that and saw some of the stuff, I was a little, I, uh, I don't, obviously don't understand about microwaves and stuff, but it, because isn't like the planet is noisy, right? Like if some, you, you know, because of the radio waves and everything else that we got going on, it's, the planet is noisy. Like if from some uh, out in space, you can like the stuff that we're emitting is in fact going out there. Yeah. But you're saying it stops at a certain spot? Oh, unless no. you do it at a certain way? Oh, no. So he was, no, it's just based on sound waves. They would get, they can't travel past the Earth's atmosphere. Hmm. So, but if you convert it to a microwave signal, then it hmm. just keeps going. Oh, I see. And it's on its way. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's still going somewhere. <laughs> That's very, very cool. So I, and that, I'm just amazed that like these people just call you up or like you're in, like you happen to run into Winton and then now you're <laughs> with this Bill Louds guy. Like, how does this happen? Like you just, you know, Michael, I don't know. It's, it's not from, you know, there are people that have family connections or there are people mm -hmm. that have you know they've got into a certain group in society where i mean that's the whole thing about the labels like you know you're part of a stable and you get certain benefits of being part of a group but you also get a lot of drawbacks i just always wanted to do things my way and i felt like if i had to compromise on anything where it wasn't a hundred percent integrity or how i imagined it from the music to the lyrics to the execution, the whole thing. I would have I would have rather done any other job. You know, I would have preferred to be a hairdresser or something, because um, I just couldn't stand behind something I didn't believe in. So I feel like that has maybe allowed me to really, you know, if I have a vision and I share it with people or they, you know, see something of my work, I feel like maybe then they get inspired to get involved. Mm -hmm. um, so with, you know, the Bell Labs president, he'd seen my out musical jacket and he'd mm -hmm. seen these other innovations that I'd done and was really interested and wanted to have a conversation. And, and even with that, that was an embarrassing conversation because I had never heard of Bell Labs at that point, you know, <laughs> and we're on this conference call and I'm and he's talking about these 
Turing Awards and you know Nobels and Oscars and all these and listing all these <laughs> achievements and you know the telephone and the transistor and, <laughs> yeah. and I'm literally like oh my god this is so bad I haven't you know I had no idea and but from that you know he asked if I would come over and test out this platform they were developing and I think a lot of people might have said no also because they wanted to do a performance with it mm. in just two three weeks up you know from this phone call and I usually would have wanted more time and but I liked him so much and I liked you know their whole their ethos so I felt like even just to meet them and spend time with them and if this doesn't really work it doesn't really work it's not the end of the world but by being open to that and going over and you know, I think a lot of it is also being open and not having, you know, not getting too fixed about what you think your roadmap is, but being able to deviate and and be flexible because actually every one of the projects in terms of the roadmap was a total deviation. Mm -hmm. But those are the things I'm most proud of. <laughs> right. So, uh, speaking of roadmap, are you, are you do you tour now, or what is going on with that? Well, touring doesn't particularly excite me. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's, I think, like, I really enjoy performances. I really enjoy sort of, especially curated performances, you know, if it can be in the Victoria and Albert Museum library or, you know, the oldest rare booksellers or, you know, wherever, not, I've just given <laughs> two library examples, but, um, you know, I was just in Korea, I did a performance over there, I really enjoyed that, but it's not something I, it's not where I put a lot of my focus, you know, because I feel like the touring and the streaming are so noisy, you know, mm. in terms of that's that's where everyone is. And I've always felt like I want to think about the things people aren't thinking about and think about ways that music can exist in spaces that it wouldn't usually exist mm. in a fashion where it can really imprint on people. And, you know, maybe that's, you know, that's in my head the new vinyl hmm. so you have an audience of one alien or maybe an entire alien civilization we don't know <laughs> we, we don't <laughs> <laughs> so, so, so whatever um, happens with the earth I'm fine <laughs> <laughs> They're gonna come for you. They'll just like appear and go, we are here for a BT. <laughs> <laughs> like, uh, like the Futurama example. Where they, yeah. They wanted to, what was it? We want McBeal. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we want the one they call McBeal. Uh, so, uh, so that's all fascinating. So how do you, how do you make a living then? It's, it's both surprisingly easy and a constant challenge in terms of which I think it is for everyone you know I think that the, being a musician today is hard, harder than it's ever been even yeah. if people argue that it's easier because of 
the you know fact you can take the power back on certain areas or these you know you can understand micropayments or these other collection societies it's not because when you look at the volume you look at how much music now exists and how little curation compared to 20 years ago and this isn't I'm not being an old you know stickler I think there are a lot of benefits of the digitalization of different mediums in terms of access and availability and inclusivity but you know ultimately if your mission is to to make the best art possible and you're going to do that regardless of the time frame that you're operating within it's a difficult it's a difficult time because there's so much noise and how do you filter how do you know what to find you know and with media losing a lot of the power that it used to have to be able to say listen to this you know cover of GQ and now you can go sell I don't know, 20,000 copies of the mm-hmm. record or whatever it is, you know, that started to, I guess, go down in the end of the 90s. And so I feel like that discovery element is, is harder. And I also think that for me, the big draw was how creative you could be, how curious and imaginative you could be that's why I wanted to be an artist in the first place it was you know the cover the track listing the 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 sort of multi-sensory aspect of records as much as the individual you know songs themselves and so when you take that out of the equation we have a lot of a lot of information we're in an information age but everything's kind of sitting in the same mental area and, and, and it's it's in a loop to give you back what you think you want right i mean you did the, the the ability to discover it seems infinite but when you're you know you're tracked every click is tracked and then they give you the same thing that you were just clicking on because they think that's what you like then it's even harder for to find you know new things right it's just like this giant echo chamber Totally. And, you know, it really, when you, when you consider volume, if you consider 60,000 songs uploaded a day on Spotify alone, there's no way you can go through that. It's impossible to go through that. Right. And so, and then you also factor in, you know... That most of it's crap. Well, and... <laughs> <laughs> but you factor in, like... Click farms and right. you know we're now in an age where we've replaced value with metrics but metrics are so corruptible and they have been corrupted and now it's so much easier to corrupt them because you're corrupting numbers rather than you know physical you know like you okay back in the day you'd go try and skew the system by everyone would go purchase the album right. of the albums right. but now it's like it's so much easier to manipulate that stuff. Mm-hmm. So I kind of think that echo chamber analogy is it's perfect. And, you know, and it's happened with, the, with news, it's happened with everything. It's mm-hmm. like we've, we've got so much and yet we don't know, you know, we don't know how to select any longer because also we don't have those filters. Right. Um, and I think filters, I think, you know, limits, it's like, limits are so necessary for both creativity but also um, receiving 
some, you know, the yeah. being an audience member. So do you think you're like a lone wolf in the forest? I mean, a lone voice, I should say, in the forest? Or do you, are there people have similar sentiments about, um, you know, the tangibility of an experience and you having to be there as opposed to streaming or that kind of thing? Or do, are there other people like you? <laughs> I don't know. I, you know, I don't spend a lot of time thinking about it. I do feel like a lone wolf. <laughs> some of the time or a lot of the time but I also don't feel like that's a problem because you know I think you do have to be lonely to some degree to and you do have to be when I say bored I don't literally mean bored but you do have to have that space around you to really go deep into what it is you you want to say or you want to contribute and I feel incredibly lucky to have met so many people across all these different fields from you know neurologists to engineers to tailors to um you know i don't know like the the i love that variety i think mm -hmm. that there's great inspiration for me in the way that i get to work with so many different types of people in so many different professions um, so in some ways that whole cross fertilization, you know, and, and the fact in that way that you're, you're alone in some ways, but then you're also crossing over into all these areas that a lot of musicians wouldn't, I find that exciting. So how did, how did you, and you're obviously, you're a Londoner, yeah, and so how did you end up in Los Angeles? Happy to have you here, by the way, very proud, Thank Angelina, you. myself, Yeah. so it's great to see that, and, and I was remarking to a previous guest, couple shows ago uh, how you know it, 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 as you know I have the bookstore and um, for like two years ago people coming into the store were asking for you know looking for studio space and they were all from San Francisco and then you know for because you know, cost of fortune or whatever but uh, and then this year everybody's from Brooklyn or you know they're New Yorkers and uh, you know so I'm proud of that that there's a lot of yeah that kind of thing happening here so I was curious perhaps you're the new wave <laughs> how long have you been here two years ah. yeah I I love Los Angeles I feel like I I really love it and then sometimes I hate it yeah. but maybe that's just the way it is but I I think that there's a lot of space out here like lit literally there is space and something I have an issue with is having you know your eye, eye line built up mm. um, I think in New York and London just not being able to see into the distance it for some reason it really bothers me uh, I like going back to London almost as a visitor you know I was there <laughs> pretty recently for this film that the Barbican commissioned on my mm -hmm. work uh, and then I was there a year ago for the exhibition I did of my album designs at the Victorian Albert Museum that was a total life highlight I mean if I could talk about you know if you're thinking about touring versus other ways of exper of people experiencing what you do being able to spend two weeks in my own 
solo exhibition, which was something of a retrospective, which was surreal because, yeah, because I, I don't feel like, I'm that. How old are you? You look like you're like 12. By the <laughs> no, way. I'm 31. Mm. Um, and to work with the David Bowie curatorial team and to see, you know, 150,000 people come through this exhibition. And I was there constantly giving constant tours and the V&A people were like, why? This is, you know, a lot of artists don't just stay in their show. This is wonderful for us, but like, aren't you bored? And I was like, well, no, this is why you, I do it. This yeah. is why I do everything. And, and you know, the, the, for the V&A, like one, one addition to some of the innovations I mentioned was creating this uh, space chamber, this mylar, a NASA grade mylar wrapped space chamber where people could go in and using a coin operated viewport, the kind you would look out to see, they could go back into the anti-stream experience watching this record player in front of them come to life. And that was because I hate VR headsets and mm -hmm. after the raw space stream had happened and I wanted to show people, I hated them having to put on these stupid disconnecting ugly devices yeah, goggles and, uh, yeah. so I, I was thinking there has to be a way of of doing that but where everyone from a grandparent to a kid knows how to interact with it where groups can do it you know together and it feels magical and there was this one boy who had severe autism that just wouldn't leave the chamber and every day he his, him and his family would come back um, and then they actually came to the documentary that the Barbican put on. Mm -hmm. And something like that, you know, the fact that that chamber had made such an impact on him. Yeah. And so when are we going to see something from you? When, when can I go see something? Oh, yeah. Well, there will be a screening of the film here. Uh, Plus a kind of plus a performance and a few other things, so I will be the first to let you know when well, that please. is. When are you going to do, or who you're just putting that together? Or? Well, there are a few different options of yeah venue and potentially LACMA, potentially mm -hmm. you know, um, and then the next major US, it, you know, in terms of there'll be definitely things happening in the next couple of months that you will be the first to know about. But the next major project, um, well, there are two. One is I'm currently working with The Mill uh, in LA to build a environmental protest piece that is part song, which I wrote after seeing An Inconvenient Truth mm -hmm. 13 years ago. It's called From Green to Red. And it's part music video, but it's also a timeline of the universe built with 800,000 years of historic data predominantly mm. looking at... Yeah, I saw that. What does that mean? 800,000 pieces of historic data. What is that? So it's just using data from 800,000 years ago until now to give people a sense of what we've done to the planet. Oh, for the, the CO2? Yeah. Oh, I see. The, so the, the, da the data is what's been collected about CO2? Yeah. Okay. So that, we did a preview of that also at the Barbican as an installation. Um, and then that will be at South By and a few other places. Huh. And yeah, it's... In spring? So it, this yeah. Next year? 
Um, and it's really just you know trying to figure out how you can make something that is visual and interactive and evocative that gives people a sense of kind of where we're at but in a way that you can grasp because the you know big problem with both like politically and environmentally the kind of situation is that it's a lot of it people feel disconnected from or powerless right. know, in relation to so it's trying to find a way of really um, making something that that sums that up as a visual statement so there's that project and the next record installation will be at the Art Institute of Chicago mm. um, and that is a way of presenting a record as a secret communication system using code that was pioneered by Hedy Lamarr in World War Two, mm -hmm. and it will feel like you're walking around an old radio um, discovering the secret channels and the dials and uh, so the record will be kind of broken up into its different parts but then also the liner notes will be um, narrated as you know these radio style channels and the whole thing will be brought to life as this sort of 3D sonic holograph and people will also be able to leave their own messages that will die out over time but you'll be able to discover in this installation. Mm -hmm. Sounds very cool, I want to see that. Yeah. <laughs> when, when is that going to happen? So that will be 2021. Oh wow. Which is the longest, the longest advanced date I've ever had, but I, I think with museums they tend to work. Yeah, yeah, yeah they got a few years out. Yeah. Well, that's fantastic. All right, well, thank you so much for coming. I really enjoyed this. I did, there's some other things I want to talk to you about, but we'll do so often. Okay. Yeah? <laughs> thank you. Thank you so much, Michael. Oh, super fun. Thanks. You've been listening to A.G. Geiger Presents, Tales from the L.A. Art Underworld. My guest tonight has been Beattie Wolf. You can learn more about Beattie and her innovative work and music at BeattieWolf.com. That's Beattie, B-E-A-T-I-E, Wolf with an E, dot com, and at AGGeiger.com. A.G. Geiger Presents is produced by me, Michael Delgado, in conjunction with the Mayfair Hotel, music and artist management company Regime 72, and A.G. Geiger Fine Art Books. Thanks for listening.